Section 29 of Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malone. Knickerbocker's History of New York, Volume 1, by Washington Irving. Book Four, Chapter One. When the lofty Thucydides is about to enter upon his description of the plague that desolated Athens, one of his modern commentators assures the reader that the history is now going to be exceedingly solemn, serious, and pathetic, and hints, with that air of chuckling gratulation with which a good dame draws forth a choice morsel from a cupboard to regale a favorite, that this plague will give his history a most agreeable variety. In like manner did my heart leap within me when I came to the dolorous dilemma of Fort Good Hope, which I at once perceived to be the forerunner of a series of great events and entertaining disasters. Such are the true subjects for the historic pen. For what is history, in fact, but a kind of Newgate calendar? a register of the crimes and miseries that man has inflicted on his fellow-men. It is a huge libel on human nature, to which we industriously add page after page, volume after volume, as if we were building up a monument to the honor rather than the infamy of our species. If we turn over the pages of these chronicles that man has written of himself, what are the characters dignified by the appellation of great and held up to the admiration of posterity? Tyrants, robbers, conquerors, renowned only for the magnitude of their misdeeds and the stupendous wrongs and miseries they have inflicted on mankind. Warriors who have hired themselves to the trade of blood, not from motives of virtuous patriotism, or to protect the injured and defenseless, but merely to gain the vaunted glory of being adroit and successful in massacring their fellow-beings. What are the great events that constitute a glorious era? The fall of empires, the desolation of happy countries, splendid cities smoking in their ruins, the proudest works of art tumbled in the dust, the shrieks and groans of whole nations, ascending unto heaven. It is thus the historians may be said to thrive on the miseries of mankind, like birds of prey, which hover over the field of battle to fatten on the mighty dead. It was observed by a great projector of inland lock navigation that rivers, lakes, and oceans were only formed to feed canals. In like manner, I am tempted to believe that plots, conspiracies, wars, victories, and massacres are ordained by providence only as food for the historian. It is a source of great delight to the philosophers, in studying the wonderful economy of nature, to trace the mutual dependencies of things, how they are created reciprocally for each other and how the most noxious and apparently unnecessary animal has its uses. 
Thus those swarms of flies, which are so often execrated as useless vermin, are created for the sustenance of spiders. And spiders, on the other hand, are evidently made to devour flies. So those heroes who have been such scourges to the world were bounteously provided as themes for the poet and historian, while the poet and historian were destined to record the achievements of heroes. These and many similar reflections naturally arose in my mind as I took up my pen to commence the reign of William Kieft. For now the stream of our history, which hitherto has rolled in a tranquil current, is about to depart forever from its peaceful haunts and brawl through many a turbulent and rugged scene. As some sleek ox, sunk in the rich repose of a clover field, dozing and chewing the cud, will bear repeated blows before it raises itself, so the province of New Netherlands, having waxed fat under the drowsy reign of the doubter, needed cuffs and kicks to rouse it into action. The reader will now witness the manner in which a peaceful community advances towards a state of war, which is apt to be like the approach of a horse to a drum, with much prancing and little progress, and too often with the wrong end foremost. Wilhelmus Kieft, who in 1634 ascended the gubernatorial chair, to borrow a favorite though clumsy appellation of modern phraseologists, was of a lofty descent, his father being inspector of windmills in the ancient town of Sardam, and our hero, we are told, when a boy, made very curious investigations into the nature and operation of these machines which was one reason why he afterwards came to be so ingenious a governor. His name, according to the most authentic etymologists, was a corruption of Kiva, that is to say, a wrangler or scolder, and expressed the characteristic of his family, which for nearly two centuries had kept the windy town of Sardom in hot water and produced more tartars and brimstones than any ten families in the place. And so truly did he inherit this family peculiarity, that he had not been a year in the government of the province before he was universally denominated William the Testy. His appearance answered to his name. He was a brisk, wiry, waspish little old gentleman, such a one as may now and then be seen stumping about our city in a broad-skirted coat with large buttons, a cocked hat stuck on the back of his head, and a cane as high as his chin. His face was broad, but his features were sharp. His cheeks were scorched into a dusky red by two fiery little gray eyes. His nose turned up, and the corners of his mouth turned down pretty much like the muzzle of an irritable pug-dog. I have heard it observed by a profound adept in human physiology that if a woman waxes fat with the progress of years, her tenure of life is somewhat precarious. But if haply she withers as she grows old, she lives forever. 
such promise to be the case with William the Testy, who grew tough in proportion as he dried. He had withered, in fact, not through the process of years, but through the tropical fervor of his soul, which burnt like a vehement rushlight in his bosom, inciting him to incessant broils and bickerings. Ancient traditions speak much of his learning, and of the gallant inroads he had made into the dead languages, in which he had made captive a host of Greek nouns and Latin verbs, and brought off rich booty in ancient saws and apothegms, which he was wont to parade in his public harangues as a triumphant general of yore, his spolia opima. Of metaphysics he knew enough to confound all hearers, and himself into the bargain. In logic he knew the whole family of syllogisms and dilemmas, and was so proud of his skill that he never suffered even a self-evident fact to pass unargued. It was observed, however, that he seldom got into an argument without getting into a perplexity, and then into a passion with his adversary for not being convinced gratis. He had, moreover, skirmished smartly on the frontiers of several of the sciences, was fond of experimental philosophy, and prided himself upon inventions of all kinds. His abode, which he had fixed at a bowery, or country seat, at a short distance from the city, just at what is now called Dutch Street, soon abounded with proofs of his ingenuity patent smoke-jacks that required a horse to work them, Dutch ovens that roasted meat without fire, carts that went before the horses, weathercocks that turned against the wind, and other wrong-headed contrivances that astonished and confounded all beholders. The house, too, was beset with paralytic cats and dogs, the subjects of his experimental philosophy and the yelling and yelping of the latter unhappy victims of science, while aiding in the pursuit of knowledge, soon gained for the place the name of Dog's Misery, by which it continues to be known even at the present day. It is in knowledge as in swimming. He who flounders and splashes on the surface makes more noise and attracts more attention than the pearl-diver, who quietly dives in quest of treasures to the bottom. The vast acquirements of the new governor were the theme of marvel among the simple burghers of New Amsterdam. He figured about the place as learned a man as a bonds at Peking, who has mastered one half of the Chinese alphabet, and was unanimously pronounced a universal genius. I have known in my time many a genius of this stamp, but, to speak my mind freely, I never knew one who, for the ordinary purposes of life, was worth his weight in straw. In this respect, a little sound judgment and plain common sense is worth all the sparkling genius that ever wrote poetry or invented theories. Let us see how the universal acquirements of William the Testy aided him in the affairs of government. End of section 29. Reading by Malone.